according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the word of God, turning to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. We want to pick up where we left off a week ago. We're dealing with an avalanche of Old Testament passages. In verses 5 and following, we have passage after passage after passage, and it does bounce around a lot from Psalm 2 to Psalm 95 to different Psalms to uh, Psalm 45 to Psalm 110, and uh, some from 1 Samuel or from 1 Chronicles. There's a lot of uh, Old Testament that's put together in a very particular way, and the Holy Spirit is using the author of Hebrews here to prove the powerful statement that was made in verses 1 through 4. The book of Hebrews opens with a salutation, with a prologue that is just as powerful as anything you'll ever read anywhere in the Word of God. And this, this uh, verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews introduces the chapter, introduces the book, introduces really biblical Christianity. Right there at its core can be defined in these four verses. And so opening with such a powerful statement, the, the author here, who I think was Luke or may have been Barnabas or may have been who knows, But the author here takes four verses to introduce the book and then the rest of the chapter proving from the Old Testament how these things should not be a surprise. These things were all spoken of from uh, through the prophets long ago in many portions and in many ways. And so this is uh, where we want to pick up again here where we left it off a week ago. Before we do get started though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. This gives us an opportunity if we are not in fellowship, if we have carnality, then we need to confess that. We need to get right with the Lord. We need to confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then we need to ask for teachability, that He would humble us to receive the Word of God implanted. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the blessings we have to assemble together on this day. Father, there are places in this world that your children are not permitted to assemble openly in a public building with a sign out front. Uh, But here we are. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your provision. Father, we thank you for a uh, lampstand where the Word of God goes forth, line upon line and precept upon precept. And I thank you for brothers and sisters that make teaching of the Word of God their number one priority They're not coming for the the entertainment or the programs or the fun and games. They're serious students of the Word of God, Father, realizing that the days are evil, that we must uh, keep short accounts. We must um, accomplish all that you have designed for us to do. So, Father, on this day, might we be equipped. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to receive thy Word. We are sitting at the feet of Jesus, Father. I thank you for that hymn. I thank you for its truth. Uh, We're asking for you to exemplify that in us now this morning. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we deal with the second section here, starting in verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The conclusion to the prologue is that he has become as much better than the angels. Verse 4 says, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And we're going to get to issues in the book of Hebrews. They're going to be contrasting uh, Israel and the church, 
Levitical priesthood versus our priesthood. We're going to be contrasting Old Testament with New Testament, and that does become a powerful uh, element within the book of Hebrews, but we're not there yet. Before we get to Moses in chapter 3, we've got two chapters where we are dealing with angels. And the whole contrast between angelity and humanity is significant. It was not the angel of the Lord that went to the cross. Understand that. Throughout the Old Testament, we have angel of the Lord all kinds of places. Jacob is wrestling with the angel of the Lord. We've got angel of the Lord flying over Jerusalem and killing Assyrian soldiers. We've got all kinds of places that the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament. But the angel of the Lord is not born of a virgin. It is the God-man who is born of a virgin. And in fact, once Jesus is incarnate in the flesh, once the Word becomes flesh, we never see Him again as the angel of the Lord, ever again in the New Testament. And that's, that's significant, all right? And so uh, when we are contrasting angelity with humanity, we want to recognize that that is a monster study that it is, it is going to take us a while, that we're going to have a, a huge scope of passages to consider. And in fact, two full chapters of Hebrews does just that. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 is focused on angelity versus humanity and the role of Jesus Christ as the God-man who is the centerpiece of the Father's plan. No angel fulfilled the Father's plan the way that the God-man did, the way that Jesus Christ did. And so we can answer these questions. To which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. None of them. No angel can make that statement because only God the Son is begotten of the Father. Every, every other angel is a created being, not a begotten being. And that is significant. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And so there we have Second Samuel chapter 7. And it's curious how these passages come together. Is he a son or not? Yes, he is a son. So why does he then have a promise, I will be his father, he will be my son? You know, if that's already a reality, why make that a promise? Is there something more going on there? Is there something significant happening there with the greater son of David who's going to rule for a thousand years on this earth and a thousand generations on the new earth? There is something powerful about that father-son relationship between the two. And uh, we get a, a big part of that here in the book of Hebrews. Verse 6 says, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world. See, he already brought the firstborn into the world once. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation, and he came into the world in the first advent in the manger, born of a virgin, very humbly. He didn't come to conquer. He didn't come to rule. He didn't come to be served. In fact, he served. He washed the disciples' feet. He laid down his life. His life was a life of humility and service, and that's the pattern for us. But when he comes the next time, it's not going to be another pregnant virgin, okay? It's not going to be another manger. It's not going to be another baby. And uh, it wasn't the baby that went to the cross, all right? It was the adult son who went to the cross. <clears throat> and so we're going to be clear on these things as well. When he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, I know you're all excited. I know you want to learn prophecy and you want to learn, well, you know, where are we in all this? What's the church going to do after the rapture? What's the church going to do in the millennium? And uh, what part do we have in Armageddon? And what part do we have in the kingdom? And, and we're all eager to get into eschatology as it applies to us. Just put that on hold. We'll get there. It's done in chapter one. All right. In chapter one, we're dealing with angels. 
and something that's going to happen, and we're going to have the worship of Jesus Christ by the angels in heaven and on earth. All right, and that's going to be a significant difference from what we had in first advent and what we have even today. Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. We took a whole hour last week to detail this. The uh, demotion of the mightiest creatures ever made. All right, The angels are the mightiest. They're in the spirit realm. They can... Uh, they can do some amazing things. They can fly. They can destroy cities. They can, I mean, they do some amazing things in that invisible realm when they interact with the visible realm. You, um, so much so that I think it piques a human curiosity. There's a morbid interest in angels a lot of times because, uh, you know, we watch movies and we read books and we think, ooh, you know, are there, are there angels right now watching me? And yes, there are. But we're not to be overly morbid about it. We recognize they have their place. And they're learning while they watch us. We better set that example. We better be growing in the Word of God. <clears throat> and whereas we have a great promotion in store for us, when we are absent from the body and at home from the Lord, when the bride is exalted and glorified, we are fellow heirs with the heir of all things. Think about how awesome that is. Humanity has an amazing destiny in front of us. And it's one of great uplifting. It's f- our eternity future is far superior to our humanity present, right? Does anyone want to trade eternity for what we got now? I don't think so. Because what we have coming up in eternity is so much greater. For the angels, however, it is a demotion. It is a decrease. And uh, they are going to be transformed. Of the angels, he makes them winds, as ministers, a flame of fire. This is an eschatological promise of a diminishment. And they're going to become our energy sources, our power sources. It's going to be curious to me uh, how these things are going to work and what's going to heat our homes and what's going to what's going to serve humanity in the millennial kingdom and for a thousand generations on the new earth but it is a decrease okay there's no question it's a decrease mighty beings are going to be diminished and for two-thirds of the angels they're fine with that they accept the wisdom of that they love jesus for that but for one-third of the angels it is unthinkable they cannot accept being lowered beneath us cockroaches us dust creatures, these mortal humans in our bodies of dust and how frail we are. The idea that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, they will not accept it. Satan and the one-third of the angels that followed his rebellion absolutely will not accept the diminished capacity they've been assigned for eternity. And that becomes a factor of study also. Whereas a gust of wind is but momentary and a flame of fire is but momentary of the sun, he says, verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Keep in mind, that's longer than just forever. Okay, Forever and ever. And that's duplicated for a reason. And we have Hebrew idioms that speak of, of eternity of eternities, the ages of the ages. We've got Greek idioms that speak of the ages of the ages, forever and ever. And they're employed here world without end amen all right and so this is not a gust of wind this is not a flame of fire this is not a flash this is not a momentary thing this is an eternal thing that the father has promised to his son and because he is the one that's been entrusted with the righteous scepter the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness therefore god your god has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And so now we're caught up to where we left it a week ago. And uh, there are so many themes here and there's so much 
power in these verses, and we want to understand these things as it relates to Israel, as it relates to the church, but ultimately as it relates to the angels and their rebellion against God the Father and God the Son. And because it's not to the angels, no angel is entitled to this throne, no angel is entitled to this scepter. No angel can fulfill what uh, Psalm 45 speaks of in loving righteousness and hating lawlessness. In fact, Satan in his rebellion was the direct opposite of that. Unrighteousness was found in him. So clearly this can't be his scepter, even though he lusts after it. It can't be his throne, even though he wants to sit on it. So you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you. How can I be talking to God and then talking to God about his God? Okay? Now that clearly requires Trinity, requires what we understand. And what the Hebrews would have understood, I think, in the Old Testament, clearly what we understand in the New Testament, that Jesus Christ is God, God the Son, and that he serves God the Father. It doesn't mean he's less God, but it means he's pleased to serve God the Father in the, in the role of Trinity. Same with the Holy Spirit. Serves to spotlight the Father and the Son. Now, uh, last week we dealt with a slide. Let me put it back up here. Um, I'll look at all the slides and find the one I'm looking for. How about this one? Winds and flames are fleeting, but the throne of Jesus Christ is forever and ever. We discussed that. The scepter of righteousness rightfully belongs to the son of David, the Lion of Judah. And we dealt with these scriptures, although it was very quickly, it was running out of time. This morning I have even less time on a communion Sunday. Um, But I would encourage you, um, write these passages down and consider them. Read through them, pray over them, study them. Genesis 49, there's a message there. It's a prophecy that Israel gives to Judah. Israel's got 12 sons. Those sons are, are 12 tribes. And Judah is the tribe of the, of the scepter. It's the tribe of the sovereign reign. And it's prophesied there. There's a prophecy with respect to Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs. And that's the uh, promise of Jesus Christ, a messianic promise of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice he is the lion and he uh, crouches and he, there's a lot of detail in there. And, and uh, I just encourage you, we dealt with it a week ago. And then go to 2 Samuel 23 and see the uh, sweet psalmist of Israel and see David himself and what he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He knows that he's, his descendant will sit on that throne forever. And he's, he's humbled by the whole idea. David is, the, uh, is, the, is a man after God's own heart, but he was a sinner, was, you know, the chief of all sinners until Paul comes along, right? And with David, I think, held that top spot. And yet David is the one that was so humbled by God's grace, would always confess, would always be returned to fellowship, would always have that intimacy with God. So you can read that psalm in 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 7. And then you see the Messianic psalm in Psalm 2, verse 9, You are my son, today I have begotten thee. And the great millennial promises and fullness of time promises that are found in uh, Psalm chapter 2 and Psalm 23. You know, we're used to the Lord as my shepherd, and we forget there's a rod and a staff in that in that psalm as well. And that rod and that staff, that rod especially, is the terminology we have for scepter in uh, Genesis 49 or in Isaiah, in, uh, uh, Psalm 45, as quoted by Hebrews 1. And then Micah 7.14. Again, whoever looks at Micah, <laughs> okay? Well, you better look at Micah. Micah chapter 7 especially, 
you know, do you like having your sins cast into the depths of the sea? Well, then you like the prophet Micah. And pay attention to chapter 7 and pay attention to what is yet future for David and his throne. What is yet future for the Jewish people in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ? And all of this is to say, if, uh, if you have been exposed to replacement theology, if you think that God's done with Israel and that the church is replacing Israel, if somehow you've been exposed to that, you've been taught that, you've bought into that, um, get rid of it, all right? Dump it now because God is not a liar and God has made promises to David and Israel has a future. And when Jesus reigns, when he reigns as the King of kings and Lord of lords, he will be doing so as the son of David on the throne of David, at least for that first thousand years, all right? And then beyond that thousand years in the new earth, he remains the son of David, but he has another throne as the son of man. And we'll see that also. So pay attention to uh, Genesis 49, 2 Samuel 23, Psalm 2, Psalm 23, Micah 7. Get a handle on all of that and then come back to Hebrews 1. And I think you'll have a better appreciation for the, the righteous scepter as the scepter of his kingdom. And we can start looking for that. We can start saying, even so, come Lord Jesus. And we can stop, um, we can get rid of the idea that the uh, American political process or the ballot box will give us a hero that can save our nation, all right? We can, uh, not, we can stop confusing earthly politics with eschatology, what God has promised. We will never have perfect government until Jesus Christ returns. Then we'll have perfect environment, perfect government, and the world will still hate it, all right? But uh, that's, that's a different message. I want to talk about this anointing. We didn't quite wrap up verse 9, and so before we get to creation and laying the foundation of the earth and heavens and, and why, why this universe is, is disposable, um, we're gonna, we, we got to talk about anointing and companions, all right? Uh, so we're going to be in 10, 11, and 12 before you know it, but we've got to deal with the oil of gladness, uh, or sometimes it's called the oil of rejoicing, or sometimes it's called an oil of joy. Um, you can render it in English in different ways, but the, uh, the Hebrew here from Psalm 45 is curious. As it shows up here, it shows up in um, uh, oh, Isaiah 61 in particular, Messianic prophecies, prophecies of future, all right? Prophecies that, that require God's direct involvement to bring about. They cannot be achieved by human effort. They cannot be achieved by world cosmic uh, wisdom. Anointed with the oil of joy, the prophet, priest, king serves as head over a body of companions. We want to understand this. When it was first given in Psalm 45, uh, nobody knew who those companions are or who they were going to be because the church is a mystery in the Old Testament. So when it's written in Psalm 45 and it speaks about the oil, uh, being anointed with the oil of joy above your companions, um, you can bet there's a lot of discussion about, well, who's the king's companions? Who's the king's bride? Who's the king's queen? Because Psalm 45 speaks of a queen there. And yet no Old Testament believer has a perspective to understand the church, the bride of Christ, you and me. They would have no clue about you and me here this morning on a Sunday morning. Jews and Gentiles together, one body in Christ, living the word of God in a, in a spiritual reality. They would have no clue for that. But that's what we see here in Hebrews chapter 1. All right. Anointed with the oil of joy, the prophet, priest, king serves as head over a body of companions. This was not fulfilled in the first advent. He was given an anointing shortly before his death. There was a sinful woman that in grace and love just anointed him and prepared him for his burial. 
But there, he did not receive this anointing as the king. And uh, this is uh, the only crown he received was the crown of thorns and the mocking scorn of the Romans at, uh, at his death. And so this is second advent in its fulfillment. We want to understand these companions, okay? I'm not giving a lot of Greek. I'm not giving a lot of Hebrew at this 11 o'clock hour, but here's a term you want to know. It's called metakoi. It's the plural of metakos, all right? M-E-T-O-C-H-O-I is the plural. Metakoi. And you and I are the metakoi. We've got to be clear on that. Metakoi is a theme that is developed throughout the book of Hebrews. In fact, I'm going to show you the verses here this morning. And then what's neat is we're going to take communion today. And it's going to be the metakoi that are going to be taking part in communion. We are the companions. We are the bride. We will be the queen, although we're not yet prepared for that. We are being suited for that. Metakoi is like an intensive koinonia. Okay, it's related to fellowship, but it's so much deeper because it speaks of not only fellowship, but it speaks of active participation. You could, you are partners. I am a partner. We all are partners. If you are a born again believer in Jesus Christ, then you are a fellow partaker of Jesus Christ and a partner with him in the plan of God. Fellow heirs and fellow workers with Jesus Christ. And all of this is summarized in the term metakoi. There are authors, by the way. You ever read Jody Dillo, Reign of the Servant Kings? All right. There's a, it's, it's a good read. I disagree with a lot of it, but I agree with a lot of it. And uh, if you can read it with discernment, I can recommend it with caution. <laughs> all right. Um, ultimately, I'd like to write a critique of it and kind of teach a class on it. But um, that's for another day. But he camps on this term metakoi, absolutely camps on this term metakoi. And, uh, and I'll never forget the first church I ever visited where they had been influenced by that book and been influenced by that theology. Um, one of the deacon's wives asked me, she said, well, aren't you excited to be a metakos? And I said, what's that? You know, and, and she was flabbergasted. She said, you know, take away your ordination. How can you be a pastor if you don't know if you don't know Metacost. And so I read up on it and I learned. It's a, it's a special theme. It's a marvelous concept. So let's look at it, not only here, but chapter 3 and verse 1. Once we get through the angelity chapters of chapter 1 and 2, what are we looking at? Chapter 3. Therefore, holy brethren, this is you and me in the body of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, partakers, here's our Metacoy terminology, partakers of a heavenly calling. Great distinction between Israel and the church, of course. All of Israel's blessings are earthly. Our heritage is heavenly. Our citizenship is heavenly. Our calling is a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Consider, think about, dwell upon, fix your mind upon Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, Israel had a high priest, did they have any apostles? What, what is this? How is Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession? This is something entirely new. This too is something that could not have happened in the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews makes a point. If, he was, uh, if this was still Old Testament, he wouldn't be a priest at all because he's from the wrong tribe. He's from the tribe of Judah. And Levi is the priestly tribe to Israel. So something new is happening here. We have a high priest and a priesthood here that has nothing to do with the Levitical uh, offerings, nothing to do at all with the Mosaic Code. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in his house. This is our first introduction to the Moses-Jesus contrast. 
For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Verse 5 says, Moses was faithful as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. Hello today. (laughs) All right. Hello, New Testament. Hello, book of Hebrews. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. Okay. That's us, body of Christ. Okay. And uh, don't be scared by the, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end, because we will, because this is the security we have in Christ since we will. And we'll talk about that also. All right. So that's uh, the partaker there in verse one. We have another one in verse 14, a warning passage. Uh, Starting in verse 12, it says, take care, brethren. Are you still with me? Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you. Okay, so raise your hand if you think you're excluded from this warning. Nobody, right? Take care, brethren. If you're born again, this is your warning. That there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Just because you're saved doesn't mean that you can't rebel and, and go into apostasy against the will of God. Yes, he's given you a new heart, but until you, until you die, you still have that old heart as well. You have the old nature and the new nature now battling it out. And your volition determines which nature you're going to operate by. If you're going to be in fellowship or out of fellowship. If you're going to walk in the light or walk in darkness. So take care, brethren. And encourage one another. Your best help in this battle is us. One another, the body of Christ. Plug into a local church. Get under a shepherd. Be a part of a body that prays for one another and loves one another and teaches one another and encourages one another day after day as long as it is still called today. I love that. That's a beautiful principle. The whole language of today that sweeps through Hebrews from today I have begotten thee to day after day as long as it's called today. We have the the New Testament Christian way of life that is focused on today. And we're not waiting for Saturday or the seventh day to be our Sabbath day. Our Sabbath is today. Day after day, as long as it is called today. Lest, or as long as, uh, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And this is what we have in the body of Christ, this battle against our carnality. And we get to help one another out in this regard. For we have become partakers of Christ. And that is a reality. And then we have an if. What kind of if is this? We hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And just like I said in verse 6, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it as if it is up to you to make this happen. It's not up to you to make this happen. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. All right? Since we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Okay? You say, well, wait a minute, I thought you just said that any believer can fall into apostasy. Yes, any believer can fall into apostasy, but no believer can lose their salvation. This passage proves that even though some Arminians get scared, they get scared of the warning passages of Hebrews, and there's no reason for that. So stay tuned, we'll have some fun with that when we get there. Chapter 6 and verse 4. More metakoi. <coughs> This is fun too because this is, uh, this is the beginning of a message after having closed chapter 5 by telling his readers to grow up, 
Okay? You're still babies. He wants to really take them through the, de- the depths of Melchizedek doctrine. He's just ready to launch into a whole chapter on Melchizedek, but he can't do it. And we spot that in chapter 5 and verse 10, how Jesus is designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Then he says, concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. You know, this, this 11 o'clock hour is going to be real hard for anyone that comes in here dull of hearing. The book of Hebrews is not suited for the dull of hearing. So we open every class with prayer and we invite you to, to, to sink your teeth into some meat, not some milk. 5.12 says, for the, by this time you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. You should be old enough now to be chomping down on a T-bone and you're still nursing. <laughs> that's, that's a problem. That's a problem. Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And so we teach the full spectrum here. We give milk, we give meat. We know that there are babes that were just saved recently, and there are mature believers that have been saved for 80 years and longer. All right, we've got, we've got a full spectrum of, of uh, believers here in this congregation, and we need that. That's what allows us to serve one another in the one another capacity of this. Now that's the, that's then introduces chapter 6. So leaving the elementary teaching, let's press on to maturity. And um, in that context then, he says in verse 4, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly uh, gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, that's metakoi, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. You know, everything we have in Christ is just the appetizer. It's the taste. Our spiritual gift, the filling of the Holy Spirit, everything we have, our whole portfolio of assets in the church age, it's greater than anything any stewardship has ever had. Greater than anything Israel ever had, the Gentiles ever had. The church has been given more, and yet it's just the appetizer. It's a taste it's the earnest of our inheritance. And then have fallen away. That's the danger. You can fall away. You can walk away from Bible doctrine tomorrow and never look back. And that's, I just weep over that. I know brothers and sisters that have done it. And I pray for them. They're not yet miserable enough to come back. Well then Lord, make them more miserable. Do what it takes. They've got to get under teaching. Because what are they going to do? They can't get saved again. They're already saved. So it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. And we'll deal with that warning passage as well. Don't be scared of it. We'll teach it. It's nothing to be scared of. In fact, it's something to celebrate. No believer ever loses eternal life. Finally, Hebrews 12.8. Okay? It's not a trick question. How long is eternal life? So how do you lose it? <laughs> okay, if eternal is eternal, can't be lost. If, if 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 you lost it, then it wasn't eternal. That's just that's just obvious. Also, if you lost it, that means Jesus Christ disobeyed God the Father, and that's not possible, because Jesus said, "This is the will of my Father that of all you've given me, I lose not one, and I raise them up on the last day." 
Jesus Christ has to raise you up on the last day in victory or he will defy the will of God the Father. You ever think about that? And right there, I mean, that's just kind of the end of discussion because if Jesus can, can disobey God the Father, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. <laughs> you wouldn't have been saved in the first place. So the idea that he can't disobey the Father, he went to the cross, he saved you, now you think he's going to disobey the Father, having gone through all that? No. So, these warning passages are there for a reason, and it uses powerful language for a reason, but don't ever be afraid that, that you will uh, die and go to hell. Alright? That's not going to happen. Finally, Hebrews 12.8 uh, the joy we have to be children is that we have a Father who loves us. And um, verse 7 says, uh, well, verse 5, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, my son. Now this is remarkable here, okay, because he's speaking to a son. Who's he speaking to? The Father is speaking to God the Son first and foremost, but then he's speaking to any born-again believer that's saved in his Son. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. He scourges every son whom He receives. So thank God for divine discipline. Just thank God that He loves you enough to discipline you, that He doesn't leave you. He's not content with the good enough you think you are. Okay? You and I grow content. We grow complacent. We think, eh, I'm okay. I'm better than the next guy, so hey, you know, God says no. Your work in progress and some of that arrogance got to get busted out of you. We got to dust off the rough corners and all these other things. You got things to grow in. And discipline will get you there because he loves you. And he scourges every son whom he receives. <laughs> okay? This is my dad's illustration because he, he would accuse his mother, my grandma Mary, he would say, uh, you don't love me. And he'd be crying because she spanked him. And you don't love me. And she'd say, how dare you say I don't love you? I love you. Let me show you how much I love you. And she'd spank him again. <laughs> okay? So he gets a double spanking for claiming that it was the first one wasn't out of love. Of course it was out of love. At some point you learn to quit saying that. Okay? See, if you are without discipline, what does that mean? Verse 7 here of Hebrews 12, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Okay, it's rhetorical. All these questions are rhetorical, but it's like, to which of the angels did he say? To, to uh, what son is there whom his father does not discipline? It's the son that the father doesn't love or that the father doesn't acknowledge. You're not my son. Your father will have to discipline you. I'm not disciplining you. You're not my son. I'm not your father. I don't love you. Okay? And it's forceful language. Particularly if you're illegitimate. That's a concept that's lost in our generation. The idea of being born in wedlock, out of wedlock. What's a wedlock? You know, you know what does that mean? You know, Well, you know, my baby mama, my girlfriend's baby daddy or my i mean it just gets all complicated okay and yet god designed for a father and mother in a covenant before the lord to train up the next generation of legitimate children legitimate children 
And, uh, and I know the world says there's no such thing as an illegitimate child, like there's no such thing as an illegal person, or there's no such Let me tell you something. Let's stick with the biblical presentation here. Bastards are bastards. Legitimate children are legitimate children. The legitimate child is an heir. The bastard is not. And that is doctrinally powerful to a God that is centered on generations, a thousand of them, and inheritance for the glory of Jesus Christ. So, it says in verse 8, we've already answered the question in verse 7, the son without discipline is the bastard that the father doesn't love. If uh, you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, here's our metakoi, then you are bastards, illegitimate children and not sons. You see what that is? Your father, the devil, is leading you down a path. But if you are a child of God the Father, then thank him for his love and for his discipline, of which we all have become partakers. It goes on. I find great comfort in this. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? The reason why, if you grow up in a home where your father loves you enough to establish rules and boundaries and enforce those boundaries, if he loves you enough to not let you run the, you know, the inmates run the asylum, then thank him for that. And in your adult capacity, thank him for that. Because uh, otherwise, man, we're studying this right now in Proverbs, by the way. For they discipline, I love verse 10, they disciplined us for a short time as seems best to them. <laughs> Isn't that great? They, uh, they maybe didn't do so great, but they tried. Okay? They maybe, uh, yeah, they weren't perfect, but they were trying. All right? As seemed best to them. And maybe it was too much. Maybe it was too little. Maybe it was misdirected. Maybe. Maybe they grounded the wrong kid. You ever get grounded for something your brother did? I'm telling no stories. My brother's here this morning. But now think about it. And actually it was my sister, now that I think about it. Um, <laughs> they, they just wing it, okay? They don't know. Chances are, if it was something stupid, then yeah, I'm the one that did it. So I don't blame them for assuming I'm the one that did it. But they discipline as seems best to them. Your father, on the other hand, in heaven, he knows everything. And his discipline is perfect. And it's not too hard, it's not too soft, and it's not misdirected, and it's perfectly targeted. It's going to do what he designs it to do. So submit to it, accept it, learn from it, get past it. Learn the lesson now so you don't have to retake this test over and over again. Because after you've been trained by it, verse 11 says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Yeah, who, who likes that? I don't want to go through that again, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Okay? See, there's training you're supposed to get through doctrine. You're supposed to get trained in the Word of God. But if you don't get trained by the Word of God, then He sends you to the alternate training, which is the discipline. And that will train you. And then afterwards, give Him the glory because it yields the peaceful fruit of of righteousness. So be thankful for the discipline, for the, for the lumps. Take your lumps and learn from them. Grow through them because they're designed to equip you for the ones coming up. 
And that's the thing. If you keep bailing on this one, this is the easy one. Wait till you see what's coming up. Don't bail on this one. Learn this lesson now. This, this lesson now is equipping you for the real tough one that's on the way. That's why it says, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Again, that's why we have a body of believers that come together in a priesthood to love one another in this way. All right, so the book of Hebrews has a pretty amazing theme here on the metakoi, on the partakers, on the body of companions. You see, the bride is a mystery in the Old Testament. But we go back to Psalm 45 and we see this enthronement we learn that there is a queen that is spoken of later in that same context. So join me in Psalm 45, and we'll take a look. There is a special queen that's being highlighted. The bride is a mystery in the Old Testament. Hundreds of prophecies related to the Messiah, hundreds of prophecies related to the son of David, the son of Abraham, hundreds of prophecies related to the coming Christ with respect to the kingdom But uh, just one that I can think of that relates to the queen, and we're looking at it right here in Psalm 45, okay? Some people think uh, Song of Solomon is an allegory that speaks of the bride of Christ, and that's, that's not right either. It's less heretical than the replacement theology, but it's still terrible, so get rid of that. Um, <clears throat> church is a mystery. You can't have a whole book of the Bible that's an allegory of a mystery that won't be revealed for a thousand years, all right? The, the Song of Solomon has a purpose uh, for when the day and age in which it was written. <coughs> and uh, perhaps we'll get to teach that. And maybe after Proverbs, we'll follow up Proverbs with Song of Solomon. <coughs> so Psalm 45, the bride is a mystery in the Old Testament, but the enthronement psalm, Psalm 45, highlights a special queen. And so... Um, what do we see here? Um, we see a song of love. We see we're celebrating this king and how amazing he is. Fairer than the sons of men. It says in verse 2, grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, almighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. See, second advent requires a sword, requires conquest, requires victory. In your majesty, ride on victoriously. Victory brings in the kingdom. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. And so, yes, there is Armageddon. There is victory. There is battle in the great tribulation of Israel that ushers in the millennial kingdom. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdoms. Is this familiar? This is in our Hebrews passage this morning, all right? You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Now, who might be envisioned there? From the standpoint of the Psalms, the only thing you can consider, who would be a peer of Yahweh? Who would be a peer of God? Well, there, maybe there's, a, there's angels in view. Maybe there's, um, you know, some angels in particular think they're mighty enough. Maybe there's some angels in particular think they're glorious enough. Problem is, is they don't love righteousness and hate wickedness. In fact, they promote wickedness. The prideful ones that think they're worthy of this throne are uh, 
not uh, qualified based on this description. So who could be his fellows? He is a God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Elohim of all the Elohim. But there is no El of all the Elohim that's entitled to be his companion in this way. His companions are us, the bride of Christ, as uh, he's pleased to become the firstborn of many brethren. <coughs> but here in the church, or here in Psalms, it's a mystery. All of your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. We have that hymn that we sing every so often of out of the ivory palaces, and he lowered himself. He lowered himself. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. So the finest gold the world knew, the ancient world, and here she is dressed out in the finest gold, uh, his queen. So here is a bride suitable to the incomparable Jesus Christ. He has companions and he has a bride, and it's laid out right here. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. And so we have an address to a girl, all right? A girl that's going to become a bride, that's going to have a, a new house. Then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. That's interesting. The daughter of Tyre was Jezebel. The, the, some of the most wicked women, you know, even more wicked than the Moabites were these Phoenician women, Jezebel and all the rest. The king's daughter is all glorious within. So she is, not only is she the bride of a king, she's also the daughter of a king, okay? That should be a clue to us also, but no Old Testament believer would understand any of this. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. Now what kind of children is the, is the bride going to have with the king? What kind of children does the queen have with the king? Okay, I mean, we, we understand in earthly terms, a king marries a woman and she becomes the queen and then they have babies. And those are, you know, Prince Charles and Prince Andrew. And Okay, we, we see how that works. But what about the bride of Christ and Jesus Christ? And what are we talking? Who, who are our princes and our princesses and our offspring? Who are the offspring of Jesus Christ? Okay, start to get into some more deeper stuff in... in uh, New heavens and new earth, fullness of time, eschatology. All right, thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. Uh, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. That's kind of interesting since we're entering into a world in which the former things will not be brought to mind. That we have global forgetfulness and yet here is a uh, remembrance that's promised. In all generations, therefore the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. All right, so the beautiful truth of this, you and I and the bride of Christ, you and I, what we have to look forward to, you and I and the, the wedding supper of the Lamb, not uh, receiving invitations, but issuing the invitations and having the virgins that stand with us in, uh, in this capacity. So there it is. 
Stay tuned. We're going to have more to say about being a partaker with, uh, with Jesus Christ. All right. So let's get back to Hebrews 1 then, and let's look at... Oh, wait. There's more. I'm sorry. How did I miss that? All right. The uh, oil of joy, or the oil of gladness, the oil of however you want to translate sason. Uh, we have shemen sason. Shemen sason. Uh, and so we have the oil of joy. And I don't mind calling it oil of joy, but in Isaiah 61 it's called oil of gladness. And I can't explain why it's got different English renderings. It's the same expression. Um, the oil of joy is featured in Psalm 45.7. It's also featured in Isaiah 61.3 in a millennial passage, in a passage that Jesus would not let himself read the verse. He would not let himself read it. And I find that interesting. Jesus stopped short of this verse when he could not declare this prophecy fulfilled. And that's curious to me and it's powerful. Have you ever gone through this? Let's look at it, okay? It's a story from Jesus here in, in Luke 4. So I'm going to read this backwards. I'm going to start with Luke 4 and then we're going to go to Isaiah. Luke chapter 4. This oil of joy. You ever wonder if Jesus throughout the first advent kept talking to himself and saying, Father, can't we just fast forward ahead to the second advent? <laughs> you know? We have to finish all this first advent stuff. And especially, I mean, it's vocalized in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? It's vocalized in the night in which he's betrayed. He said, if at all possible, let this cup pass by me. And the Father lets him know it's not possible. If you want second advent, you've got to finish this work of the cross. And so he does. But in Luke 4, Jesus uh, gets to have a public ministry. Back in Nazareth, in his hometown. All right. Luke 4, 16, he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. He gets a chance to teach in his hometown. That's amazing to me. I've, I've done very little preaching in Seattle, Washington, and I'm kind of curious to see what might be open to, to B3 when he gets up there. All right. And he'll have a freedom to preach up there because he didn't grow up there. It's Austin that he has a hard time preaching in. All right. And uh, entered the synagogue in the Sabbath. He stood up to read, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And this is Isaiah 61, and we're about to turn there ourselves. But notice, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me. There's the anointing. To preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. The reason why the eyes were fixed on him is because he barely read one verse and a third of verse 2. He barely began the chapter in Isaiah 61. He read verse 1 and he read one third of verse 2. He left the second third and the third third of verse 2 unread, plus verse 3, plus verse 4, plus a whole context beyond that. He left it unread. And he rolls up the scroll, he hands it to the attendant, and he sits down. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he had to stop the reading there because in rightly dividing the word of truth, he had reached the boundary between first advent and second advent. And so he stopped his reading there to say it's fulfilled. It's a great victory on his part. 
And he leaves the second advent unspoken. He won't read about it. He won't voice it out loud. Well, what's it about? And you'll notice the, uh, the reaction here. All were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? How do you learn to preach like this? You know, who is this guy? And uh, the, uh, he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb. You know, see a prophet has no honor in his own town. So let's go back to Isaiah 61. I'm out of time. We've got to wrap this up and then we have communion. But in Isaiah 61, you'll notice, notice the uh, Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So here's the anointing. To bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And that's where he stopped. Do you see that there? If you, if you can see that in Isaiah 61 too, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, that's only a third of the verse. But what comes next? The day of vengeance of our God. He can't go to vengeance. That's Armageddon. That's tribulation. That's second advent. To comfort all who mourn. Again, that's second advent. To grant those who mourn in Zion. To give them a garland instead of ashes. The oil of gladness. Here's our Shemin Sason the uh, oil of joy or oil of gladness instead of mourning the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting they will be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the lord that he may be glorified then they will rebuild the ancient ruins they will raise up the former devastations they will repair the ruined cities all of that takes second advent it takes the tribulation it takes the virtual destruction of the jewish people the jewish nation And also, did you pay attention? Not only is he anointed, he's going to be sharing that oil of gladness, that uh, uh, Shemen Sason. Um, He's going to give it to them. It's his provision for them instead of mourning, the garland instead of the ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. For those that humble themselves, for those Jews who humble themselves, who endure to the end so as to be saved, this is their blessing as they enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. All right, so this is, uh, this is what we're dealing with here in the anointing of Hebrews chapter 1. Let's close with prayer and then we'll bring the Sunday school in and we'll have our uh, communion service. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for Hebrews I thank you for the effective way that the author weaves all of these Old Testament verses and concepts and themes and demonstrates their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, both First Advent and Second Advent. Things that we have to look forward to, things we as the bride definitely have to look forward to far beyond anything Israel could have ever dreamed of or, uh, or imagined in any way whatsoever. Father, I pray that we might be effective as we study this, as we learn this, as we understand it, as it shapes our attitude in in the body of Christ. Father, we want to have an effective witness to Jews and Gentiles alike as we proclaim the church and the body of Christ for what it is. We want to be appropriately oriented to Israel in this stewardship. We want to be appropriately uh, fixed, uh, having our eyes fixed on Jesus and, and mindful of the rapture, which could be at any moment. 
And Father, I pray that in all this teaching that we would be uh, impacted by the principles of glory, the partaker blessings that are ours, not because we've earned it, not because we've deserved it, but because you and your grace have baptized us into union with your Son. Father, I thank you for the unity with him that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So Father, it's our joy and our delight to study these scriptures. It's our joy and delight to partake of the communion table. And we partake here this morning, Father, with such joy. Thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.